you got a Bible, you want to turn there with me, we'll be in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. If you don't have it in front of you this morning, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read down through verse 22 together. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. You know, back in 2015, there was a small ice cream manufacturer down in Brenham, Texas, some of you may have heard of, called Bluebell Ice Cream. Uh, and in 2015, they had to shut their plant down because of an outbreak of listeria that had been found in some of their products. Right? I call it the Great Bluebell Famine, okay? Um, and for some of you, that's really what it was, all right? It was like a famine, like legit famine. Uh, you didn't know what you were going to do. Like, you have to go buy dryers now, right? Or some other off-brand of ice cream, right? Because Bluebell had shut down. And I can remember as they began to slowly reopen, right, people were flocking to the store, right, to get some homemade vanilla, okay? And so they, they were flocking to the store to pick up, uh, you know, whatever flavor of Bluebell ice cream they could find because they didn't, couldn't bring all the flavors back at one time. They had to slowly begin to re-release the flavors that they had had out in the supermarkets, prior to their shutdown and so like here comes vanilla and then chocolate and then cookies and cream Mm, right if you want to buy some buy some of that for me okay cookies and cream and then they had you know rocky road and all these other flavors began to unroll off of their production line because bluebell has at least today has 66 different flavors right and so you've got flavors with fruit in them, you've got flavors with chocolate in them, you've got flavors with nuts in them, you've got flavors with all kinds of cookies, cookie dough, baked cookies, right? All kinds of stuff that's been piled together into the same ice cream, right? All kinds of different flavors, and so there's something for every taste bud out there, right? Right? Whether you like stuff that's chocolatey or fruity, whether you like stuff that's nutty or just plain, Okay? Someone's like, yeah, I like a lot of nutty stuff. Okay? 
But whatever flavor you like, there's a flavor for your taste bud. And that's a great thing that we ought to celebrate whenever it comes to ice cream, right? The problem sometimes is whenever we cross over into the world of the church, right? It seems like in the church, there's a flavor for everybody as well. Right? If, if you do the research, okay, there's within our nation alone, there's over 200 different Christian denominations. Okay, 200. Worldwide, globally, it's estimated there are 45,000 Christian denominations. In the United States alone, there are 62 different flavors of Baptist churches. Like we're running neck and neck with Bluebell, okay? We're right there, keeping pace, right? 66 different flavors of Baptist churches. And yet in the Bible, there's no such thing as a Presbyterian church. In the Bible, there's no such thing as a Methodist church or an Anglican church or a Reformed church or even a Baptist church. In the Bible, there's no such thing as a traditional church or a contemporary church. Right? Now, while some of these designations may be helpful to designate, well, this is what we believe about baptism, or this is what we believe about how the church should be structured and organized, might give an indication of what you're walking into on a Sunday morning if you're visiting a church in a community. In the Bible, those designations are not present. And a part of the issue with some of these denominations at times is that these churches will end up competing with each other rather than cooperating with each other. They compete rather than cooperate. Right, they work against rather than being for. They can't celebrate victories in the lives of other churches because they're only concerned about their own local church or their own particular denomination. Because their loyalties is to their own liturgy or their own worship style, their own structure, their own ethnicity, their own class. And it pits themselves against rather than for other assemblies. In the church as well, there's no such thing as an immigrant church or a native church, a white church, a black church, or a Hispanic church. There's no such thing as, a, as an urban church or a rural church. There is in the Bible one church. There's one bride. And there is one groom who will return for one bride. That's what the testimony of the Scriptures say. Now listen, I'm not saying that we should try and shove all of the flavors back into the box. Pandora's box was opened years ago. Okay? But what I am saying this morning is this, is that because of this reality, and nowhere else is it clearer than in Ephesians chapter 2 that there is one church. Because of this reality, there is no such thing as a second-class Christian. There's no such thing. In fact, Jenny... Uh, Jenny Manley, in an article named The Status Change We All Need on the Gospel Coalition website, said this. She said, if you're in Christ, you're a part of something bigger than yourself. You're part of God's chosen and beloved people. Your destiny is tied up with that of your head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your significance is found in Him. This group identity is more defining of you than your ethnic background, country of origin, or career. God is weaving a beautifully diverse tapestry of people from all tribes, all tongues, and all nations. And if you're in Christ, you're part of that exquisite fabric. Of that tapestry that God is creating in this body called His church. Right? And yet unfortunately, within 
many cultures and many contexts, we don't always live out that reality, but we organize ourselves around secondary doctrinal divisions or we organize ourselves around age or class or gender or ethnicity. And rather than seeing ourselves as a part of this exquisite and beautiful tapestry that God is weaving together, we see ourselves only as a part of our local tribe. And it makes us suspicious of those who are outside of it. And yet, in Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that this is a reality. Regardless of how well it gets expressed locally. It's a reality. Right? And because of that, there's no such thing as a second class Christian. So if we're going to live out this reality that we read on the pages of Ephesians chapter 2, what must we know and what must we do? I only got two points for you this morning. Doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon. There's just two points. Right? What must we know and what must we do? Here's what we, here's what we must know. Is that the church is ground zero of a new humanity. It's ground zero of a new humanity. Now listen, that word ground zero gets used in a couple of different ways, right? You can talk about the ground zero of the... Um, of 9-11, okay? So whenever those two planes flew into the World Trade Centers in New York back on September, uh, back in September of 2001, what happened as those planes fell to the ground, or, or, or those planes and those buildings fell to the ground, it created this massive pit called Ground Zero. And I can remember watching the news for years to come about all the work that was taking place at Ground Zero. Because ground zero can be the location or the place at which or above which or below which a massive explosion takes place. That's one way the word ground zero gets used. But another way that the word ground zero gets used is in this way. That is the center or the origin of penetrating and powerful change. It's the center of penetrating and powerful change. And what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 is that in this body called the church, that it is the center or the locus or the location or the place, whatever other way you want to describe it, of a penetrating and powerful change as it gives birth to a new humanity. In this place called the church. Now, why do I say that? In Ephesus, in the church there, you had people who were coming to faith in Jesus from a Jewish background. And in Ephesus, you had people who were coming to faith in Jesus from a Gentile background. Uh, You had both of these different categories of people represented there in the Ephesian church. And in the Old Testament, if you read back into the first part of the book, right? In the Old Testament, Israel, the Jewish people, was God's chosen nation. They were God's beloved. God had set His affection upon them, carved them out as His people from all the peoples of the earth. And He does so to establish them in a way that they would bless all the other nations and be a light to them to show them what life in relationship with the one true God who had formed everything by the power of His Word was like. So God carves out a people for Himself in the Old Testament, the Jewish people. And yet, as time went on, 
the Jewish people took their beloved chosen status as a means to separate themselves from all the other peoples of the earth. And rather than being a light to the nations, she took her lamp and she hid it under a basket. Separating herself from the rest of the nations. Which would have been who? The Gentiles. And they despised the Gentiles. The Gentiles were, listen, everyone else. Okay? In the Bible, when you see Jew and Gentile, you know what it's talking about? All of humanity. Because from a Jewish perspective, there were Jews and there were everyone else. Okay? So you had Jews coming to faith in Jesus in Ephesus and everyone else coming to faith in Jesus in the church in Ephesus. And yet the Jews oftentimes saw themselves as superior to the Gentiles because of the privileges that they enjoyed as God's covenant people in the Old Testament. In fact, in verse 12, Paul even says this. He outlines five different privileges that the Jews enjoyed over the Gentiles. Listen to what he says. He says, first of all, they lacked the hope of the Messiah. They were without Christ in verse 12. Right? Now, Israel was without Christ as well until Christ is born of the Virgin Mary there in Bethlehem. And yet prior to that, they didn't lack hope of a Redeemer, a hope of a Deliverer, hope of a Messiah, of one who would come one day. Because God had told our first parents in the garden that there's going to be a seed of a woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And from that point forward, the Jewish people had looked forward to the hope of a Messiah, not the Gentiles. They had no hope of the Messiah. Second of all, alienated from citizenship in Israel. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the national identity, the ethnic identity of the people of God. So they were separated from the hope of a Messiah. They were cut off from the people of God. Third, they were strangers to the promises of God. When you read the Old Testament, and you see all the promises that God is making to His people time and time and time again, promising His faithfulness, promising His provision, promising His presence. The Gentiles did not share in those promises, but they were strangers to them. He says they were without hope. Number four, without hope, right? In other words, they had no certain expectation that a better future was coming. Whereas in the Scriptures, even in the Old Testament, the Jewish people had that expectation. They were looking forward to God's inbreaking kingdom, not the Gentiles. And then fifth, they were without God in the world. They were cut off from Yahweh. From the one true God who had made all things. So even Paul says there were privileges enjoyed by the Jewish people that were not transmitted to the Gentiles. And yet, right, in verse 13, the very next verse, what does it start with? It starts with a little three-letter conjunction. Capital B-U-T. That's right. Right? I, had, I, had a, I had a friend in ministry at one point who said he wanted to preach a series called Big Butts of the Bible. Okay? B-U-T. Okay? B-U-T. Because this is a massive one. Okay? It's a massive one. 
Here the Gentiles are, separated, segregated, no hope, no relationship to God, no relationship to God's people, no vision of a future Messiah, Redeemer, or Deliverer. Cut off and alienated, but now, he says. But now. In other words, this, is the, this used to be your reality, he says to the Gentiles in Ephesus. But now, in Christ, because of the work of Jesus, he says, you who were far off, you who were separated, you who had been cast aside, you've been brought near. God has come to get you, is what he says. But now, you're no longer lack hope. You're no longer alienated from God's people. You're no longer without God. You have a Messiah, deliverer, and redeemer. So listen, listen, listen. Let me see if I can make it plain. Paul's saying this, that despite, despite where you've come from, despite who your mama or your daddy was, despite everything that was stacked against you, your ethnicity, your nationality, right? Because you were a part of everyone else. Despite that you lacked the covenant sign and seal of circumcision. Despite the fact that you came from a people who were without hope and without God. Despite the fact that you had no claim on the promises of God or the coming Messiah. Despite all of that, God came and got you and grafted you in. Now church, we would do well to remember that we too were in that state. Before Christ. We lacked hope. We lacked God. We were not part of the people of God. Could not lay claim on the promises of God. Had no hope of deliverance apart from Christ. And listen, we didn't get here. (laughs) Say it this way. Some of the old preachers used to say, right? We were raggedy. Okay? We were raggedy. And yet God came and got us. And we didn't get to where we are today because we somehow, right? If something we did, we weren't born a Christian. We didn't get here because our mama, our daddy, our grandma, or our aunt and them, right? We're, we're Christians. I, I grew up in a Cajun culture where everybody used to walk around and when you see somebody, you say, how's your mama and them? Right? Not them, but them. Okay? How's your mama and them? Right? It wasn't because they were Christians. You didn't get here because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and worked your way somehow into God's good graces. You got here because He commissioned someone to take the message of Christ who came to preach peace to both those who were far and those who were near, and He commissioned them to come preach peace to your sorry, separated self. And my sorry, separated self. And then in verse 14, Paul says that this new reality doesn't just apply to your personal relationship with God, but to a new corporate reality. Listen to what he says again in verse 14 and following. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Ground zero for a new humanity in place of the two, so 
making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now listen, there were several types of dividing walls between the Jews and the Gentiles in the ancient world. The first one might have been the law. The law that God's people had received as a Jewish people. Both the ceremonial law and the moral law. The ceremonial law separated them, segregated them from the Gentiles. Why? Because they saw themselves as more pure and holy and upstanding than those Gentile dogs. Right? And so they observed the customary washings and sacrifices and they did all the prescribed rituals that were given through the ceremonial law. But also, not only was a ceremonial law a means of separation, but oftentimes they saw the moral law as a means of salvation. In other words, if I can just keep this, right? That's part of the, the, all the boundaries they put around the commandments of God because we don't even get close to breaking those things because if we could just honor those things, then we would be in God's good graces. And so God, through Jesus, right? He, he tears down the dividing wall of the law. He doesn't abolish the moral law because the moral law still stands. You see in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, He negated it as a means of salvation. And He tears down the means of segregation between these two parties and destroying the ceremonial law. Why? Because it all gets fulfilled in Jesus. He's every offering, every sacrifice. He is the source of our purity. Not hand washings. So there was that wall. There was the dividing wall in the temple. See, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a literal wall that was constructed that divided the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. If you read the commentators, they'll tell you the temple building itself was constructed on an elevated platform, and around it was the court of priests. East of this was the court of Israel, and further east was the court of women. And these three courts for the priests, the laymen, and the laywomen in Israel were all on the same level as the temple. And from there you descended five steps to a platform with a wall running through it. And on the other side of the wall were more steps, right, another 14 steps down further to another large wall, which formed the wall to the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles, from it you could look up and see the temple, but you could not get to the temple. You could look up and see where the presence of God dwelt among His people, but you could not get to the presence of God. You, could not, you were not brought into past that wall. It was 1.5 meters thick. It was a stone barricade with notices written in multiple language warning foreigners Gentile, and Gentiles not to cross it. In fact, in 1871, a piece of white limestone was recovered from the area where that wall stood, and it read this. It said, No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure round the temple. Anyone who was caught doing so will have himself to blame for his own ensuing death. So there was a literal wall that divided Jew from Gentile in the temple. And that literal wall was an, another, was an expression of another wall that existed between Jew and Gentile, and that was a wall of hostility. William Barclay said it this way, he said the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all nations that He had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. 
So you've got a pregnant Gentile mom giving birth. A Jew shouldn't help deliver that child because you'd be bringing another dog into the world. Until Christ came, he says, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Because such contact with a Gentile was equivalent of death. See, the Jews so disdained the Gentiles. And yet we're told by Paul in Ephesians 2 that this hostility has been crushed in Christ Jesus. The separation on account of the law, the segregation in the temple, the hostility of heart between these two categories of people, the Jews and everyone else. What does that mean? All humanity. And from them God has created one new Man, ground zero for a new humanity. And how does he say he made it? By making peace between God and man at the cross. Through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus himself. As he lays his life down, both for the Jew and for the Greek. Both for Israel and for the nations. He lays His life down to bring people from every nation, tribe, and tongue together into one new man, killing the hostility between those made in the image of God and saving all peoples who would look upon Christ and trust His redeeming work to be sufficient for them. Now, what is remarkable about all of this, at least one thing that's remarkable to me, is the fact that when Paul is writing these very words, the wall in the temple still stood. The temple hadn't been destroyed yet. It wouldn't be destroyed for another several decades whenever the Romans would come in and crush the Jews. The wall was still there. But Paul is saying, hmm, what that means? Outside the church, outside this new humanity, there's still all sorts of walls and partitions that have been built to separate. But he's saying, inside the church, those walls are torn down by Christ Himself. And listen, church, when we Let the divisions and walls of partition that are outside the church follow us into the church. We turn others into second-class Christians. We fail to realize the fullness of what it means to be one new man. And it short-circuits the power of our witness to a watching world. Listen, while there are differences, there ought not be division. There's a difference between those two things. As one commentator said, how dare we build walls of partition in the one and only human community in which God has destroyed them. Think about it. The one and only human community in which God has crushed the walls of division 
through the person of Christ, he says, how dare we erect any other partitions or walls that would quarantine us from different parts of the body? So that's first. You got to know that the church is ground zero for a new humanity. So what do we do with that? I only got one more point. And that's this. Let's be who you are. We need to learn to be who we are. It was in 1979 that John Stott, the rector of All Souls Church in London, he wrote these words in his exposition of the book of Ephesians. And listen, I'll just read them to you. He says, I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be and should be seen to be what by God's purpose and Christ's achievement it already is. A single new humanity. A model of human community. A family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their Father and love each other. The evident dwelling place of God by His Spirit. Only then will the world believe in Christ as peacemaker. Only then will God receive the glory do His name. He wrote those words in 1979, but they are no less, in fact, I believe, maybe even more so relevant in 2021. Be who we are. So who are we? The text tells us that we are a family with the same Father. We are a family with the same Father. Listen, in the United States, we often talk about family all right, in three different categories, right, don't we? We talk about our immediate family, okay? We talk about our extended family, and then we talk about our distant family, okay? So our immediate family, you got a mom and dad, you got brothers and sisters, okay? You might have grandchildren. It's immediate family, right? Then you've got some extended family. You've got aunts and uncles, and you've got cousins. And then you've got distant family, okay? Those people that even at the every five-year family reunion, you still don't see those folks, Right? Okay, so they're like, you know, third cousins twice removed. Okay, somewhere down the line in the tree, you share some DNA, but you don't ever see them. Okay, so we talk about immediate, we talk about extended, and we talk about distant family. And most of us would say, within our families, we're the only sane one. All the rest of those folks are crazy. Okay, they all got problems, not me. Right, that's how we talk about our, y'all know I'm right. Right? Right? That's how we talk about family. Immediate, extended, distant, and anybody outside of me, they all nuts. Right? And yet, yet, in verses 18 and 19, we're told that through the work of Christ, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of God's household. The word household here, church. The word household. It shows up only two other times in the New Testament. It shows up in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul refers to the household of faith. Speaking of the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul speaks of the believer making provision for his own family. Those who live within his walls. So this word, this word household, it literally describes a close, intimate, familial relationship. And in our text it says it's the household or the family of God. It belongs to Him. It is His possession. 
In other words, it, it, so, so you put all this together, and what Paul is saying is this, is that through the work and words of Jesus, we are now a part of a close, intimate family that belongs to God. Here's what this means when you read the rest of the New Testament. It means there are no third cousins twice removed in the church. But in the church... We are all brothers and we are all sisters. Okay? There's immediate family in the church. Right? There's not this idea of this distant family that somewhere we're related to down the line, right? We're immediate family. That's the way the Bible speaks of the church. Only brothers and sisters. And listen, whenever you are brothers and sisters, you can fight like cats and dogs. Right? But when you are brothers and sisters, and your brothers are your sisters, your family is celebrating, you celebrate. And when you're brothers and sisters, and you see a brother or sister fall down, you pick them up. And when you see brothers and sisters struggling, you pray for them and lean in to help. And whenever you see brothers and sisters grieving, you grieve alongside of and with them. And when your brothers and sisters are mistreated, you raise your voice. And when your brothers and sisters are confused, you help them clarify. And when all those things of rejoicing and falling and struggling and grieving and mistreatment or confusion is happening to you, they do the same. They reciprocate. Because we're brothers and sisters. Now, listen, sometimes things that are in closer proximity to our experience or residence, it impacts us more than things that are further removed, don't they? It's part of human nature. It's reality of life. And so if that's the case, what do we do then? If something is impacting our brothers and sisters that is further removed from our place of residence or further removed from our own personal experience, what do we do? I want you to notice something in the text. And it's the person of the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, Paul says this, Through Him, Jesus, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. He says, we both. Jews and everybody else, or a native church, whether you go to a national church or a multi-ethnic church, no matter what church you go to, We are brothers and sisters. Family with the same Father. And at times before we can lean in to help others, we need God to help us. Second thing that we are, and I'm done, is that we are a temple with Christ as our cornerstone. Paul says it as much in the text. In the Old Testament, the temple was a place where God's presence dwelt among and with His people. It was a place where the Shekinah glory descended, the cloud came down at the tabernacle first, and then the temple in the Holy of Holies and filled that space with the personal presence of God. A place where worship was conducted, sacrifices were offered and the place where God's glory resided. And here we're told in the text that this temple that God is now constructing is not being made out of stone that's been quarried out of the earth, but as we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, it's being made out of living stones. 
out of person after person after person that God is laying course after course after course and building a living temple that would function the same way the Old Testament temple would as a place for God to dwell. In verse 22, we're told that this temple will be a place for God to dwell by His Spirit. In other words, the presence of God is still here. Jesus has been raised from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then they sent the Holy Spirit into the world to dwell within His people who are made into this living temple that the Bible calls the church. In other words, listen, every true temple built on the true foundation and connected to the true cornerstone would be a place where the Holy Spirit resides. So the Holy Spirit is in Baptist churches. The Holy Spirit is in Pentecostal churches. The Holy Spirit is in Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches. The Holy Spirit is in black churches and in white churches and in Asian churches and Hispanic churches. The Holy Spirit is in churches on the continent of Asia today and he's in, he's in, <laughs> He is in churches on the continent of South America this morning as well. The Holy Spirit resides in the, in the church of Jesus Christ. Every church that is built upon the foundation and is aligned to the cornerstone, the Holy Spirit dwells there. Now, the temple has a foundation, we're told in the text. In verse 20, we're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, there is some debate as to what Paul's talking about there. Is he talking about the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament? It's pretty clear he's talking about the New Testament apostles. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament prophets. I've, I'll just give you where I think, what I think it is. Uh, I think he's talking about the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. Right? But either way, I think the point is very similar, and it's this. is that where the church is founded on, the foundation of the church are the Scriptures that God has given to His people through His apostles and through His prophets. It's the foundation that they are built upon. And it's the Scriptures, church, that reveal God to us. Apart from the book, we are less grasping at straws, trying to figure out our own conceptions of who God is. Apart from the book, we don't understand who Jesus is and we cannot see why He has come. It's in the book, it's in the Bible, in the Scriptures that answer the question, what must I do to be saved? They answer the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? It's in the book. Right? The Scriptures deal with every part and parcel of our lives. Our family life. Right? It deals with our vocational life. It deals with our sexual ethic and it deals with our social ethic. And if a local church builds on the Scriptures insofar as they reveal God to us, 
They point us to Christ. They show us His salvation. They inform our families. They give us purpose, purpose to our vocation. And they deal with the lusts of our flesh. And they form how, who we think about as a neighbor and how they are treated. And listen, that church will be full and vibrant. But if you drop out any part of that, any one of those pieces, then the church becomes anemic. You know what anemia is? Physiologically, it's a lack of a proper amount of red blood cells moving through your bloodstream to carry oxygen to the different tissues in your body. And whenever you get anemic, what happens is you get tired and you get weak. And when the church neglects any of these pieces, right, because some of these pieces, right, there's a lot about these things in the book. Right? Which means this, they're a part of a balanced diet that we come to regularly and consider. And that without them, we grow tired and we grow weak. The foundation of the church is the Word of God given by His apostles and His prophets. The whole counsel of God. But this temple also has a cornerstone. It's a cornerstone in the ancient world. It was the perfect Precious and chosen stone that provided strength, support, and stability. It was always the most valuable and expensive stone because in the ancient world, in the construction process, it took the most, most labor-intensive stone to make it. It was a stone that everything was measured against. The stone that absorbed the stress and lack of integrity and any of the other stones that were placed on top of it. The cornerstone of the foundation would be the first stone to be placed and since the angles of the walls, right, were in relation to the angles of the cornerstone, then the building that was built upon it took the same shape as the cornerstone that was placed. The cornerstone was precious. Precious in its selection. Precious in its preparation. It was a stone on which every other stone rested and a stone to which all other stones were related. And Paul says that the cornerstone of the church is Jesus Himself. It is Jesus Himself. In verse 20, we're told that Jesus is the cornerstone. In verse 21, He is the one in whom the whole structure is joined and grows together into this holy temple. And in verse 22, Jesus is the one in whom we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God would come to dwell in the place where the Scriptures, where the Scriptures are preached in their fullness and where we're aligned with the person of Jesus. That's where the Spirit dwells. Paul says. And listen, as our cornerstone, I want you to know something, and I'm done. That He is irreplaceable, and He is non-upgradable. He's irreplaceable, church. You can't put political party as the cornerstone of the church. You can't place ethnicity as the cornerstone of the church. You can't put liturgy as the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Everything ought to be squared up to Him. He's irreplaceable and He's non-upgradable. There's all kinds of folks who want to put, make, like, upgrade Jesus, right? 
as if somehow by upgrading him, they're going to make him more appealing, they're going to make him better, right? And so they'll discount some of the things that he says in some circles, and they'll reinforce some of the things he says in other circles, and vice versa, right? And so in some circles, they'll try and upgrade Jesus by saying, Jesus says nothing to our sexual ethic, Right? You can do whatever you want because we are in Christ. Brother, rejoice in that and just go have a ball. Right? right? And so in some circles, it's like we want to upgrade Jesus by minimizing or discarding what he says about our sexual ethic. And in some circles, right, people will applaud and cheer. Woo! Other circles, they want to upgrade Jesus by minimizing or discarding what he says about our social ethic. Right? You can say anything you want about anything else, but don't touch justice issues. And in some circles, people will be like, yes, yes. But you know what? On both sides of that fence is an attempt to try to upgrade Jesus. And whenever you try to do that, you rob him of his power. You rob the gospel of its power when you try to upgrade it. He's the only sure cornerstone. Everything ought to be squared up to Him. So if we're going to live out this reality of the church being the ground zero for a new humanity, we've got to come to be who we are, church. Be who we are. We are a family the same Father. And we are a temple with Christ as our cornerstone. Let's pray together. Father, these words will fall on some ears and some hearts. And as they do, Father, they will fall on what your Son said Himself in the Gospels would be fertile ground. And as they fall on other hearts, God, they will fall on thorny or rocky or shallow soil. Father, would you by your grace, would you by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make us a church that rejoices in the full counsel of your word. Not just those that align with our sensibilities or our sensitivities, but even those things that cut against them. Father, may you make us into a church in this community that is living out the spiritual reality that you have accomplished through your Son of crushing the walls of division so that there will be one church. And while we may gather in different locations and we may have differences with regards to our understandings of secondary doctrines, that we would not look upon our brothers and sisters with suspicion, but with love. Father, that at times that we would petition you for change in ourselves, 
to rejoice with those who rejoice and to grieve with those who grieve. And that we would make intercession for our brothers and sisters across the globe, churches in India and churches in Asia and churches in the Middle East and churches in Russia and South America and churches in Canada and churches in Rockwall. Because they are our brothers. And they are our sisters. Help us, Father, to treat them as such. Even though there may be differences, even after a thorough study of the Scriptures, at the end of the day, God, that there would not be division. Help the church in America by your grace, to be who we are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.